So hello and welcome to the Story of Software podcast. My name is Podger Coffey. I'm the CEO at Zartis. And today we're joined by Matthias Face, who's the CTO at ML6 in Belgium. How are you today, Matthias? I'm very good. Thank you. Excellent. And uh, I believe you became a father recently. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks again. Uh, I hope it will not uh, impede my way of answering your questions, but uh, I'm very happy. Excellent. Great to hear. So, Matthias, I know your company is focused on helping large organizations get to grips with artificial intelligence and machine learning. But to begin with, perhaps you could help us unpack some definitions around what artificial intelligence is and maybe what the difference is between that and machine learning. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, First of all, AI is a very broad term. Uh, it's also not a new term. It's been there since the 50s. And basically, AI just means that tech that enables machines to act intelligent. So basically, they do something that resembles intelligence, uh, whereas machine learning is like a domain within AI that really starts from past data to learn how to act intelligent. So basically, that means that uh, instead of defining rules yourself, that ML models start from past data to uh, come up with rules that explain that data. So that's a bit of the difference between both, maybe a bit theoretical. So we could also give some examples uh, on what we do. So we basically have multiple domains in which it works. So we have a lot about text. So really about understanding how language works and have a lot of autocomplete functionalities or you have computer vision, which is about how to understand pictures or videos. And you also have a lot of machine learning models that purely work on structured data. So basically have any kind of time series or tabular data. Those are kind of the, the, the big domains that we are really active on with our customers. Matthias, could we start maybe with computer vision? Uh, I know that, you know, some of the considerations in relation to computer vision pertain to uh, driverless cars. Is that an area that your company has been looking at? And uh, maybe you can tell us about some of the other uh, areas in which we can consider computer vision. Yeah, I think I need a, like a really clear example, a futuristic example of what you can do with machine learning. Yeah, in reality, we do sometimes have questions in this area, but most of the time it's uh, more about manufacturing, looking at some process and having like an automatic way of taking pictures there and doing something with that. So basically, say you have a production process and there's like some kind of quality inspection where a person typically does like a visual inspection instead of like having this person do it over and over again, we can just do the same kind of visual inspection with a ML model. Uh, so that's like more typical use case rather than just the self-driving cars, of course. And and basically, yeah, to do that, you have typical types of, uh, uh, of approaching or clustering uh, these problems. So one of them is really just the classification and saying uh, you have this picture. Is this good or is this bad? The uh, oldest examples, I would say, is detecting cats in pictures. A very fun uh, first thing to do when they really started with like this whole deep learning approach to image classification and stuff like that. They really started with cat pictures. Uh, since you have the internet with a lot of pictures of cats to work on, basically just classifying saying this is a cat or this is not a cat is a very typical example. So this could be cat, but it could also be, is this a car or is this not a car? So this kind of problems is something that we see a lot. Then, of course, you have a like detection itself and say, show me the cats or show me the car or show me the parts, uh, which is like really about uh, detecting in, in one picture. And then you also have like segmentation. And basically, in segmentation, you really want to like show, uh, show me the exact contour of like this uh, cat where it is. And whereas this is useful is, for instance, more kind of in a, in a medical uh, space in which they really want to understand like for instance the output of a CT scan and then you have to make the contours very closely to also for instance calculate the size of it 
So those are like really typical computer vision tasks and which are really about like looking at a picture and then either being able to detect if something is available, if something is visible or really closely inspecting where it actually is. Awesome. So if we're to kind of think of the commercial uses of computer vision, so we've touched on driverless cars, you've mentioned something related to the medical sector there. So I guess you're looking to provide uh, images of could be uh, tumors, for example. Matthias, what would be some other commercial uses uh, for computer vision that we could think about? The, the most typical example is really like looking at processes where people have to do a lot of inspection or have to really look at something to decide if something uh, yeah, should happen really manually. All those examples, which could really be in like uh, security, for instance, looking at pictures, uh, videos, if something strange is going on, that could be one of those examples in which we're working. It could also be like really in the manufacturing lines to see if something strange is occurring. It could also be like, for instance, in construction, looking at a crane and seeing if somebody is walking under the crane, which would be a good idea. So every time you, you have some person really doing this as a job, looking at a uh, picture of something and then having to... Uh, do some action on that. Yeah, every time you really think about these things, this is where ML or computer vision can really make a difference to really help to do this better or easier to do this specific task. Okay. Matthias, I'd like to ask you a question about the potential for computer vision to make uh, jobs obsolete. So it's a pretty contentious uh, topic, that of the automation of jobs. And there's a concern that, you know, the technology sector is going to make jobs obsolete in the next couple of decades. That being said, when I was a child and that, you know, I'm talking 30 years ago in primary school, the conversations were happening in my geography class about automation uh, killing jobs. So, you know, technology has kept evolving. Uh, the number of people employed globally has massively expanded in the last 30 years. So, you know, the, we haven't all been made redundant because of advances in technology yet. But is something like computer vision the means by which many, you know, repetitive manual tasks finally are, are off-boarded, I guess? Since, uh, yeah, really the industrial revolution that these kind of topics, of course, come up, and I think uh, people never worked more than now. So yeah, it ended up being more kind of uh, uh, raising the standards of what people's quality of life should be, and uh, which is really increasing, of course. And that's also like really the way I think with computer vision will be the main fact of this. Basically having uh, cheaper ways of building stuff so that as a person, you are able to buy things for cheaper or you have services that currently are not possible for you to pay for. For instance, indeed, like security, uh, that you would be able to have like this personal security guard that's watching everything just automatically for you. Those are kind of the things that we're seeing basically opening up opportunities to have cheaper versions of things that are really costly right now for people, the impact on their job. Uh, of course, the content of the job will change. That's also something that we see with uh, the project that we're working on, but it's always like hand in hand. Yeah, there's never like a, a Terminator scenario in which like they really overtake the job, but it's really about finding better ways to collaborate. Uh, for instance, in the medical space, you also have a lot of papers showing this, like uh, basically it's not like uh, the doctor becomes obsolete. However, they can work together to find uh, things that were not possible to find before because you can combine both forces. The same thing as well for the production lines. Yeah, we see, for instance, yeah, we worked on uh, yeah, some very fast moving production lines, which are like impossible to determine with the naked eye. But it's possible for persons to like continuously help uh, the machine by instead of like having to do classification of like uh, 100 elements in, a, in one second. And uh, basically the person can like look at the ones that are yeah, atypical 
and they just focus on those specific ones and the machines really help it to make it easier and easier to be better at that. We'll need to have um, people coaching the machine as well. So basically providing like very good data is something that will always be needed. Matthias, I wonder, could you help us with a definition or an explanation of deep learning and what that is? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so basically, deep learning, just as uh, machine learning is part of uh, AI, and deep learning is part of machine learning. And basically, what's the motivation of deep learning is a bit inspired by the human brain, in which basically you have neural networks. Uh, so basically, you have uh, not just one layer of a typical neural network, you have layers on top of layers, uh, and then basically, Typical machine learning um, approaches, you still do a lot of like pre-processing or feature engineering, defining manual rules to make it a bit more concrete and looking at computer vision. People used to really think about uh, ways to go from pixels to numerical values in a more comprehensive way that would be easier for a computer to understand. And then basically thought of like multiple ways to recalculate it, to make it as an input, which is more digestible for the models. And with deep learning, what that actually adds is it just, you give it more the raw data and it defines this kind of yeah, feature engineering automatically. And the cool thing is that, um, yeah, this works pretty well. Otherwise, of course, we would not be talking about it, but basically as a, a way to fully leverage larger data sets. Yeah, it's been since around 2012, which really took off. And before these kind of models already existed, uh, but it's really about having more data and easier access to uh, lots of compute. Very good. Uh, Matthias, could you explain what a machine learning model is? Yeah, machine learning, uh, so we defined what it is, is basically kind of systems that uh, learn from historic data. And basically, if they learn or when they learn, the output of these kind of systems is a trained model. And basically, the trained model itself kind of combines all the rules or it like summarizes the rules learned from the data. So in reality, this is just, uh, of course, uh, zeros and one. And just as everything with, uh, with computer science, it's just like the, the program that's kind of defined after the, the algorithm basically uh, run through all your data. Then it's able to really use this model. Uh, if you have a new example and give it to it, that can automatically give you uh, the outputs. Does that make sense? You know, it certainly does, Matthias. Let's look at the history of AI, because as you mentioned, Matthias, it's been around for a long time. And I remember reading about the AI winter, which is when uh, artificial intelligence seems to have lost favorability. Could you tell us a little bit about the kind of cycle it's gone through over the past 70 years or so? Yeah, it started in the 50s. And then uh, there indeed were a few AI winters. And basically, it's... Um, and it's a bit of an over-expectation, of course, of what would be possible. And I think in the, in the 50s, it really was like, okay, basically, it will change everything within two years. And then they were thinking about uh, that translation, about speech recognition, all the things that we we're currently working on as well. And they were a bit uh, over-enthusiastic of what would happen. They had a lot of like subsidies put into it. And they were like first wins, uh, but then they basically uh, weren't able to, to deliver on that. And due to the, these over-expectations, yeah, they got in an AI winter, which basically means there was less funding and less interest yeah, to progress uh, the sector. So that happens. And basically, the, the, the same kind of topics uh, reappeared as well. So I'm, I'm mentioning uh, translation and speech recognition. Those are really like also the domains they, they, which they started in the early days, had some progress, but then also didn't move along that well, which then caused, of course, uh, these winters. If you look right now, I think these specific ones about translate and speech recognition, those work already pretty well. They're really able to help customers, really help uh, industries uh, to take advantage of these algorithms 
which basically means they really do deliver. So basically the, the high expectations, you know, we're able uh, to meet them if, of course, the, the customers are very reasonable and they have a good understanding of what's possible with them. And that's where we really want to help to make sure that we speak a clear language to showcase what's possible and what's not possible to not have this uh, AI winter happen again. Matthias, on another point, I know that you're doing some work in the sports sector. Could you tell us a little bit about how machine learning or artificial intelligence could be leveraged in this industry? I think there are uh, multiple uh, ways, of course, for sports. Uh, I think uh, yeah, one public case that we worked on, it's on uh, sports analytics. It's about uh, football analytics more specifically. And we really want to um, yeah, look at videos, recordings, and basically uh, automatically summarize what happens in there by like detecting a goal, detecting the start of the game. It's like a card uh, shown and people understand this, uh, which is really something that's before ML is basically very costly because you have some persons looking at it uh, to basically make everything stick together. And the idea is here again, let's uh, yeah, if we can automate it and make it cheaper. So that's really an interesting one. That means that basically uh, you can just have a summary of your own kid's game, which would be practically impossible or very costly without these kind of interventions from ML. It's really about uh, like the broadcasting and basically yeah, understanding what happens, but purely for making it more interactive and showcasing, okay, this is when somebody made a goal, which is very useful. Uh, but it can also go much deeper, of course. That basically helps to understand the big events. It's typically something that we can automate. Uh, so we can do as well as to really understand how many steps somebody takes to understand if he's like doing well or maybe he's uh, too active. Uh, you can really have like a lot of plots of like deeper understandings of yeah, how the game runs out. Uh, to also help team and the coaches to give like very deep analytical feedback. That's interesting, Matthias. And I wonder, uh, have you considered, could machine learning or AI be used for the purpose of scouting players? Because I know that larger football clubs spend a huge amount sending scouts to uh, to games to look at players and, and to make evaluations. I wonder, is there is there an opportunity to use AI or machine learning to identify through video clips whether a particular player might be a, a good fit for a club that's, let's say, looking for a new goalkeeper, a new striker? Has that been something that you've thought about or, or, or come across? Yeah, it's a, it's a very realistic one. Uh, I think the uh, the only question is, um, yeah, technically it's perfectly feasible. And then it's about the size. Uh, it's like uh, typically if you work uh, at customers and if it's really small, they really just say, okay, this is like one hour of work. And then it doesn't make any sense to automate it as like a very custom uh, solution as it will uh, cost a lot of time to implement it, whereas the benefits is a bit smaller. And it's the same thing here. We actually yeah, have this kind of use case for scouting. It's like understanding how much uh, would cost uh, to basically build something like this and also to maintain it because, uh, of course, it can be automatic. However, you still need to pay for the compute. Uh, so with these models that you need to run on very costly hardware and you need to pump through thousands of hours, yeah, there's still a cost assigned to it. This cost decreases over time. And the same as with everything, um, basically the models get more efficient. So instead of costing, for instance, 10 euros uh, in computes uh, for one game, if it now costs two euros, then the business case, of course, becomes more obvious uh, to really start doing this because like technically it's feasible. The, the only question is really like how much time does it cost to implement it and how much money does it cost to really use the model? So it's uh, it's really, really a realistic one. And that we also uh, worked on the two already two small tests on this already, but we didn't really fully uh, scale it out.
Matthias, I have a question specifically in relation to software engineering. So can you imagine a world in which uh, AI or machine learning has displaced uh, a lot of the need that we currently see for software developers? A world in which I guess a lot of software is developed by software itself. Uh, yeah, well, I think, yeah, it's it's a tendency that we see uh, in our own domain as well. Basically, you also have this uh, paradigm of like O2ML, which is a uh, machine learning uh, solution to build machine learning models. So you have this tendency as well that basically uh, tries to overtake the job that we are doing to implement it. But it's not that, yeah, it's yeah, every kind of like a process, it's really, really dumb in the fact that it's looking at one specific process. So if you really have a very clear inputs and outputs, you can do this one thing very well but it's not able to really yeah, use this kind of knowledge or what it does uh, to transfer it to something else. So uh, maybe like a very strange uh, start of the answer. But what I mean is that basically as a software engineer, you still have to listen to the people uh, to understand the problem and then also translate it into something that's really code. And like having parts of this done automatic by ML models is very realistic and it's also happening. However, this kind of translation, understanding and thinking, this is something that a yeah, you still need people to do that. It's really something that will keep inherently uh, necessary and typically will probably cause by ML to have even more focus on, to really focus on this interaction with other people to make sure that it comes all together. Uh, Matthias, you touched on the topic of security earlier and I was wondering, does um, ML have the capability already to be able to predict behavior what I mean by that is, could you, let's say, observe how someone walks into a shop and say, okay, that's the walk of someone who's about to steal something. Is that already possible? It's um, difficult to answer correctly. Um, the thing is that basically with ML, you look at correlations, not at causations. So basically, yes, we're able to find correlations and basically see yeah, this type of walk. It's typically linked to uh, some suspicious behavior. And we're able to classify that automatically and have some kind of performance on it. Uh, let's say it works 80% of the time, but it doesn't imply causation. So basically, it doesn't mean like because he walks or she walks this way, that means uh, there are like bad intentions. It just shows like uh, there's like a correlation that typically if they walk this way, it could mean that something bad is going to happen. That's what's possible right now. You can always find a correlations. You can also, um, this kind of correlation versus causation is a really uh, hot topic because uh, you do it because you do it with anything you could say uh, if this person has a brown hair could you uh, imply something from it and yes there's always some kind of correlation to find there's like this spurious correlations you can always have some uh, something that you can infer from it but it doesn't imply any causation so it doesn't say like because of this this happens the only thing that we can say is yeah we do see these two yeah, occur a lot together Matthias, like it strikes me that there's so much power within the technology that and with great power comes the capacity for abuses to happen. I wonder, is there like a voluntary code of ethics that companies in your particular domain are subscribing to? Like, how do you deal with the ethical pitfalls, I would say, surrounding AI and machine learning? Uh, yes, that's a, it's a big, big, big topic. Uh, like internally, we have like this whole ethics team to come up and like also to uh, really make sure that we like adhere to uh, best practices. Legally, uh, Europe is also working on, uh, um, they released this AI white paper and a big part of it is also responsible AI. And it's really about defining like clear guidelines uh, and what to do 
to make sure that these kind of uh, bad situations don't occur. And that's really a, a big topic. And also in research, this is something that uh, gets a lot more attention as something to really focus on. So it really does live. And, and then the main takeaway is it's really just as in security. It's about clearly defining what kind of use cases should be fit under this. That also needs to have like a really uh, specific uh, view on it. Uh, and you basically have a lot of these kind of frameworks currently set up to help you through it, to also make sure that if you define like your use case and uh, you think really hard, uh, really well about the potential harm it could cause as well and what all the potential benefits are. And with this, you have kind of a, a score that you get uh, to see, okay, this is a, a uh, difficult use case and which needs extra attention. And we can also apply extra things, extra uh, ways to secure it, extra ways to test it. Uh, stuff like this. But the main thing is that they're really working on like uh, defining a way to uh, score uh, your use case very well to really understand what use cases do have an impact and what other use cases are really fine to work on. Uh, Matthias, it's been said to me that we interact with uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning every day without even realizing this. Could you share with our listeners uh, maybe some examples of the ways in which we are having those interactions unconsciously? Yeah, sure. Mainly all the big tech companies, if you're working with anything that they're building, uh, you are in touch with ML, looking at Amazon and Netflix. Those are the classic example of recommendations in which you just uh, use it. And basically they ask you, yeah, you probably like this as well, uh, which is a very clear example of, of machine learning. It's one of the, the oldest cases, of course. Uh, it's the same thing for Facebook timeline or if you see Google ads. They basically are all optimized to, um, yeah, to learn from your behavior. Basically, every time that you click on something, uh, it just registers that as a like a good thing uh, to click on on something or a bad thing, so they can really optimize on making sure that the content you see is content you would like to click on as well. It's the same thing for spam filters. Yeah, all these kind of uh, things that are decided if it's not uh, purely programmed, then typically there's some kind of ML model in the back running to automate and optimize uh, the things that you see. But also for other systems, basically most postal sorting centers. There's also one of the uh, the oldest, not the oldest, but like in the 90s, the MNIST uh, example of detecting digits. These kind of models of computer vision to go from purely something that's written to like a postal code. Those are also systems that are used a lot uh, just in postal sorting centers. Um, yeah, doing payments and in, in banking, of course, there's a lot of fraud detection. And uh, this uh, transaction is it should it be could it be fraudulent or not which also typically has a lot of ml models in there so yes a lot of things going on in which you have uh, ml being used and basically uh, in production and uh, there's a lot of like quality control or planning that optimized so a lot of the tools that you are currently using as well their manufacturing might also be using a lot of ml Matthias, I have one final question for you, and it's a question you've probably been asked uh, a number of times before, and we could probably call it the Terminator 2 question. <laughs> so many of our listeners will have uh, probably grown up in the uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. They would have seen the movie. Is there a scenario in which you can imagine uh, the rise of the machines to give the subtitle of that movie? You know, do people have anything to fear from from AI and ML in this sense? Uh, yeah, well, so basically, it's a very interesting uh, research question, and certainly something to uh, for research uh, to think about. In that sense, I, I really uh, believe, of course, that it should be uh, get some attention. However, uh, like in the things that we currently see, these kind of terminated questions are really for yeah, general AI. And right now, all the ML, really everything that industry is working on, it's pretty not general at all. It's really 
yeah, very restrictive. Uh, so all the models they were talking about, individually, they can do great things, uh, but they cannot be used or transferred to anything else. Uh, so if you ask for like a, um, a model to detect yeah, bad bananas, the only thing it really can do is detecting bad bananas. So uh, the chance of that model actually ruling the world is, is uh, very, very impossible. Uh, and those are really like the very useful ML, ML models right now. Uh, for instance, as well, uh, ML models being used to go from speech to text, also very powerful. But the only thing that they can do is really that only specific task. And that's really uh, for all the models that we are working on. And uh, that's a use case for everything. It has a very limited worldview. So we're pretty safe for the time being, I would say. Again, there's probably other things that we, uh, we'd we be better off worrying about than, than the rise of the machines, at least for now. Uh, let's hope that we are correct in our assessment. Matthias, I'd like to say a sincere thank you for joining us. I know, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, you've recently become a father. So we really appreciate you making time for us at the Story of Software podcast. Uh, so thank you once again. It's my pleasure. Excellent. So production comes from Albina Krasteva and Adnan Tukar, as always. And thank you again for joining us on the Story of Software podcast. Thank you.